We're going to uh, continue in our Sunday school on the subject of habits, and um, we're going to Luke 4 last week. Uh, while I was away, we uh, had the video and um, uh, just you know, looking at um, uh, how the habits, uh, especially with modern media and how they can grow, we we're talking about the power of habits in our Sunday school, and, and uh, uh, we uh, go ahead and why don't we just read Luke 4, uh, 16 through 19, and uh, Brother Gilbert will we'll begin with that. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Then there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Elias, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And so um, our, our Sunday school is on habits. And uh, we know that everybody has them. Uh, we've talked about how habits are, uh, 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 you know, uh, all the unconscious decisions that we make in life, things that we, we don't even decide to do, but we do. Uh, uh, we use the illustration of coming to church on Sunday morning that uh, everybody here, out of habit, conducted themselves in a certain way, uh, that they, this is the product of repetition, uh, that uh, God created our brains, that we think, a certain way, and uh, we um, uh, begin to go down a certain road so often that our brain anticipates where we're going to go and does it without even having to make the decision. You know, we, we uh, drive down the road. We don't even notice the places we passed. You know, uh, if you've ever driven in an area where you've never driven before, we're very observant. We're looking around, making sure that we're doing everything right, but yet... In so many other uh, uh, places that we go to work or, or church or places we go regularly, we don't even do that anymore because our brain is working ahead of us and uh, ahead of our will, and we're just simply following uh, the power of habit. We said that uh, in studies they've done that 40% of our day is uh, choices we make in an average day is habitual, just we're just doing what we've always done. And so uh, we're studying this because uh, if we could uh, establish good habits, that would just make living for God a lot easier, make life a lot more uh, successful. Uh, we were uh, talking about uh, in our text, we have the picture of, the, of habits and the expression of uh, one is the Lord Jesus, whom the Bible says uh, was in his habit was to attend synagogue. And so that Jesus had patterns of behavior, Jesus acted uh, a certain way, and he did that regularly. We're going to look at some of his other uh, habits uh, in this study. And then we have the other side of the coin, which is the uh, picture of humanity that is uh, bound, that is held captive, that needs uh, to be liberated. And so we look at a large segment of the human uh, condition uh, where people are bound by bad habits uh, and it's like they are trapped and they need to be freed. They need to be uh, delivered. Uh, and so 
we see habit uh, in its positive sense in the Lord Jesus, and then we see the power of habit in its negative sense in so many people who uh, have habits and addictions in their life and they can't seem to get free from. Uh, and so uh, the last thing we talked about was the engine of habit, which is craving or lust. And uh, the, the, what happens to people is that you can create an appetite or a craving even over something that you know is wrong. And when you, that's working in you, that leads you uh, into behavior that overrules even your best judgment. You can, you can say in your head, I don't want to uh, do drugs anymore. I don't want to be hooked on pills or whatever. Uh, but yet, the craving becomes so strong, it overrules common sense. We uh, use the illustration of um, uh, studies they've done with monkeys uh, where uh, they will uh, train a monkey uh, that uh, when it touches the screen, you know, different pictures on the screen, the monkey is slapping the screen, and uh, when he slaps the screen, when there's a yellow line, it releases uh, cranberry juice into the monkey's mouth, and so the monkey begins to associate the yellow line with the flavor and the enjoyment that comes from drinking cranberry juice, uh, and so he begins to figure it out pretty soon, he waits only for the yellow line, slaps it on the screen, and he gets the reward. And then they remove the reward, and he will continue to slap and slap in pursuit of that gratification. And even if they set food and things that he likes around him, he won't even pay attention to it. He'll become addicted to the screen, and he'll keep trying to pursue that, that pleasure. And what they've done is they've created a craving in him. So marketers know this, and so they know that the best way to sell a product is to get people to crave their product and want that. And so they know that if they can do that, then they've created a habit. We talked about how McDonald's, you know, uh, we, uh, I went to McDonald's last night uh, and uh, had a decaf uh, coffee, and that was it. But there are people that uh, have been trained to crave fast food, crave uh, different things, and uh, they've found out, they've wired up these monkeys, that after a while, just seeing the yellow line lights up a part of their brain, and they begin to anticipate the pleasure and all that stuff, even though they're not even partaking of it, but the pursuit of it. That's called craving. And so people get this. Now, we looked in the Word of God how the children of Israel, the Bible says, began to crave flesh. They began to crave the, the diet of Egypt again, and the Bible says they fell a-lusting, and uh, before it's over, they in totally indulged themselves. God gave them a quail, and the Bible says their cravings were so strong, they didn't even bother to cook it. They just simply grabbed these birds, defeathered them, stuffed them in their mouth, and the Bible says until it came out of their noses. And that's the thing about cravings and lust is you're, you, you never are satisfied. They make you sick. And so you talk to anybody who is in bondage or addicted, and they're sick. They are sick. They hate what they're doing. Uh, they know that it's not to what they should be doing, and they're not satisfied. And so um, uh, the, the story ends, the Bible says, with uh, them burying all the people that died as a result of this and they named the place Graves of Lust. 
Kirjath Hadava, the graves of lust. And these were those people who were uh, 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 judged because they gave themselves entirely to their cravings. So um, we're going to uh, talk about something else this morning, kind of change. I want to spend uh, the next week or two talking about the importance of small things. Because if you're going to talk about habits, then we need to understand that all habits begin with little things that we don't ever intend on becoming big things. And this causes a, a, a real uh, problem in our lives. And uh, uh, let me begin with this illustration. Uh, 2003, there was an outbreak uh, of a virus that they called SARS. And maybe you're, uh, some of you might remember that. This outbreak created a global panic. I remember uh, at, right at the time when the SARS virus was beginning to spread around the world, uh, I, it, it, it uh, began in Asia. And I just so happened that I had scheduled a, a trip to Asia where I was going to hit four different Asian countries and, uh, and I remember being a little nervous about it. I remember talking to Pastor Mitchell, you know, like this virus is spreading, you know, I'm going to Asia, and what do you think? And I mean, you know, that's the last guy in the world you want to ask if you want sympathy. You know, he's the one who goes to Israel right before war is going to break out. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, Richard, more people die in San Antonio uh, than, you know, in, in all of uh, Asia and all this stuff. And, uh, and, and anyway... I remember when I got on the plane in Los Angeles, California, I got on my, my flight to Asia, China Air, and uh, all the staff, all the crew was wearing masks. That, 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 that was not a good feeling. And uh, every place that I landed, uh, you, they had all these things set up so that when you walk through it, read your temperature. Even now in travel in Asia, they still have these things and it reads your temperature because they were trying to catch people that might have the virus from entering in their country. And so they had all these precautions. And uh, when you land in certain airports, you were required to wear a mask. And, and uh, this was a, a big deal. You, the virus began in a province in China, a remote province called Pushan. And they said the virus started because in Pushan, they like to eat cats. And uh, apparently this particular cat, the virus leapt from cats into human beings in this obscure province. So the reason why I said that is last week when I was in China and I was talking to somebody and I said, where are you from? Oh, I'm not from here. I'm from Pushan. When they said that, I, you know, took a step back, said, oh, really? Pushan. Because what happened is this virus had incubated in this little uh, uh, kind of out-of-the-way province in some remote area of China. I don't know what we got, some sort of noise coming out from over here. Um, uh, but in this remote area of, of China, and it incubated there in this, you know, with these people that eat this stuff, and, and, and people were getting sick, and they're having problems. Uh, but, and... Eventually, what was happening in a tiny little section ended up becoming a huge uh, worldwide uh, crisis. And, you know, it illustrates probably that, you know, little things unchecked become big things. 
say, and, and a lot of times when we look at a, a habit in a person's life, we, we, we have to stop and step back and realize that at some point, just like this virus, it was isolated. It was, in, it was small. It could have been managed. It could have been addressed and dealt with. Obviously, it wasn't. And then eventually, it finds full-blown expression. But it always begins with something small. So I want to talk to you about the power of small things uh, this morning. Uh, and uh, again, I appreciate your input, your contributions, everything. And so let's start with some scriptures here this morning. If you want to read uh, Matthew, uh, Josh, Matthew 13, 31 and 32. Uh, Doris, Luke 13, 18 and 19. Daniel Cortez, Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Uh, I need 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Jim. Luke 1, 5 through 11. Luke 1, 5 through 11, David Sandoval. Luke 22, 39 through 44, Ebed and Dan Yoder, uh, Zechariah 410, and then I need Song of Solomon 215, Song of Solomon 215, Reglena, and then I need Matthew 25, 23 through 29. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about the power of small things, and, and the basic message of the Bible is that small things matter. Small things matter. Small things are the building blocks of life. Life has building blocks. You know, one of the things that really helped our uh, uh, mankind as they began to break through and understanding it, medicine is realizing that there are building blocks to, to matter, to physical matter, to creation. Whether it's our DNA or molecules or atoms, they realize that if they are going to improve life, the quality of life, and to get dominion over God's creation, that they needed to go down to the building blocks. And this is true in life. All success or failure can be reduced down to small things, small decisions. Matthew 13, 31 and 32. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And so the Lord Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a small seed that, that contained in this little seed is the potential to become something great, something uh, powerful, and, uh, and uh, you know, and he uses the example of a mustard seed that becomes a powerful tree in which all of uh, nature uh, uh, learns to depend on and find refuge. You find in the Bible the seed is a very powerful illustration that uh, over and over again, the, the seed, something that is small, something that you can have in your hand, and yet God has sown in his creation that these little things can be planted in the ground and they can become something incredible. I like looking at these massive trees and, and, and then just realizing that when you look at these incredible trees that at one time, they were, they, they were small enough to just fit in your pocket. They're just this tiny little thing, and yet every tree, every plant, all 
the uh, uh, agriculture that we see, all the uh, uh, all of life can be reduced down to this little thing. And yet this little thing nurtured and cultivated and protected ends up becoming something very, very powerful. Luke uh, 13, 18 and 19. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Jesus says this is not just true of nature, that everything in creation represents a spiritual parallel. And, and so he says the kingdom of God is like these seeds. That the same way that you can go and you can admire a tree or a bush or shrub or whatever, he says that the kingdom of God, the spiritual realities of life are no different. It's those little seeds. It's the little things that are allowed to grow and develop, and they end up becoming something very powerful. Now, in, in these texts, in Matthew and Luke, this is a positive thing. Little things done right, sown into a person's life, end up generating something good and something beneficial. Hebrews 12, 14, and 15. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Okay, so here in the book of Hebrews, we find it now in its negative connotation. He refers to the root of bitterness that springs up and defiles many. And so... Here is now a small thing, but it's not a good thing. It's a small violation. It's the idea of a, a seed of violation now being sown, a small matter, and that small matter not being processed and eliminated and dealt with. It ends up rooting into a person's heart, and the Bible says it never stays there. How many know that's one of the truths of bitterness, is that bitterness left unchecked, uh, it never stays and never stays contained. It ends up growing up like a weed. And the Bible says it defiles many. It, 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 it causes grief way beyond just the particular individual. Over the years, I've spoken to many, many people who have been offended by something or felt violated or going through some crisis, and they will come and, and, uh, and, and they hate to hear what they need to hear, which is you're bitter and you need to forgive. And usually they, what they want is sympathy and they want you to say, I pobrecito and uh, that's terrible, that's awful, and how dare they. And, uh, but uh, to help them, you have to give them the medicine. That is that, you know, you're bitter, you need to forgive. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, they start by being mad at, this person, but before long, they're mad at you, and they're mad at them, and they're mad at the whole world, because bitterness is a root, and it all started with some sort of seed of offense. Somebody said the wrong thing, somebody did the wrong thing, and, and if you do not deal with that little seed, then it grows up and it becomes uh, something else, and the Bible says it defiles many. First Corinthians 5, verse 6. How terrible that you should boast spirituality, and yet you let 
you let this sort of thing go on. Don't you realize that even if one person is allowed to go on sinning, soon all will be affected? Okay. Now, what version is that? New Living. Okay. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Okay. And so uh, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Here is the, uh, you know, the uh, commentary uh, on that verse, which is the background, of course, is this man who's uh, uh, an unrepentant fornicator. He's, uh, you know, in the church there, and he is involved in a, in a sexual relationship. Everybody knows it. Obviously, they know it because somebody wrote the Apostle Paul a letter about it. Uh, because they weren't happy that it was going on and the church had become divided between those who thought, hey, this is an expression of grace, you know, you know, that, uh, you know, we, God will have mercy on a guy like this and that we need to love him and he's a brother and on and on and on versus other people in the church are like, this guy's living in open sin. He's not, he's not repenting. What's the deal here? And so they wrote the apostle Paul and he makes the case that if you tolerate this, then this leaven is going to spread. You permit this, if you just overlook this, this little thing is going to end up becoming a big thing. This virus isn't going to stay incubated in Pushan province in China. This thing is going to spread. And, and that something needs to be done because little things will become big things. And it will have an impact. Now, let's put the definition again of a habit up there. And that is that an acquired pattern of behavior has become almost involuntary because of repetition. So when we think about this truth about little things becoming big things, a habit is just some decision made over and over again until we no longer are making the decision. It's now become involuntary. It was started out as something small, some, uh, a choice that I'm going to just go ahead and do this. The first time you may have ever did drugs, if you ever had an addiction to drugs, the first time you participated in that, that was a choice. That wasn't involuntary. It wasn't second nature. It was just the first time if you ever smoked cigarettes. First time you smoked cigarettes, you probably swiped them out of the... Uh, uh, your father's drawer or something like that, ran around to the backyard, nobody was looking, lit it up, uh, coughed yourself near to death, and, and did that, and then you went and smoked in the boy's room uh, uh, or what, whatever you did, and you did that a few times, and, and then eventually there came a point where the first thing you did in the morning when you got up was to reach over and grab a cigarette and light it. You didn't even realize you did it. It became, but it didn't start there. It started small. And that, that small action, repeated, left unchecked, took over your life. And it dominated you. Okay, uh, let's uh, stop right here and open up for me. Anybody have anything they want to throw in right here? Tony, David, Chris. Um, I had thought of a pretty funny habit that went on in boot camp, and it was more as like um, every day we'd have to wake up at like 5 o'clock, I believe, something like that. And what I found out was that many of the guys were waking up about 10, 20 minutes earlier b before 5 so that they can get ready 
for uh, the DIs to come in and start like yelling and telling us to get out. So they don't do that. <laughs> and so I was sitting there. I'm just. Uh, I wake up like halfway through boot camp. I wake up like I, I think 20 minutes before, uh, not thinking anything of it, like because it was my first year. And so I went back to sleep. And then the DIs come in and start, you know, going at us. <laughs> and uh, what I didn't know is that I developed a habit after that. It was just, you know, I woke up for some reason about 10 to 20 minutes before, and I started getting ready. And then the DIs would come in, and uh, it's it's a weird habit that was going on. And it was pretty funny how, um, you know, we have a mind uh, to kind of develop these kinds of habits where we don't even think of it sometimes. I mean, no, waking up 20 minutes before you're supposed to is probably a good habit to get into. Yeah. David? Yeah, you know, exactly what you're saying. The habits begin small. And, and in my research uh, back in the day, I know that things were just very, very subtle at first. It was like, okay, it's just going to be, you know, a small thing. And I would justify things like it's only enough to get me through. It's not going to be a habit. It's not going to be a, uh, something to rely on. And I'm talking about usage. And, you know, you, you justify it by saying everybody's doing it, but I'm not doing it as bad. But every battle begins with a small confrontation. And then it increases. And like you said, before I knew it, I was not only angry with myself uh, or the individual that, that uh, started me with it. I was angry with, with everyone around me. So it became not only a battle within myself or a battle within this few individuals, but it was a war between me and whoever was against me and said that I was not doing you know, and it. And it was all started by just saying, yeah, I can, I can handle this. I, I can justify this because uh, just a little bit will get me through the day. You know, and, and, and just like you said, it, it just blew up. And just like everything else, you think it's just a sword fight, but then it becomes a raging battle. Chris? Just uh, two quick things. One is I remember, I don't remember the text, but it was some piece of literature we I was forced to read in class. But uh, one of the things the author described is how, like, the good ways that we go is like a line drawn in the sand. And it's the same way when we put boundaries around ourselves, that we think they're in stone or that we'll never do these things. But it's like a line drawn in the sand. And when we're, our eyes are on what we're looking for and not the boundary or the marker, we walk past it. And as we walk over that line, it disappears. It's, we don't even see it anymore. You don't think about it. You just cross those boundaries nonchalant because your eyes aren't on, on the boundary, but you're looking at something in the distance. And um, I was thinking about the, the little thing that makes a big difference, like the bitterness and uh, uh, when we went to go see my parents in Africa, we did the, the tree, the canopy tour, like through the treetops. And um, uh, they had, I was reading all the little placards, and they had this thing, um, uh, this tree, it's these enormous, 100-foot tall, gigantic, monstrous trees. And, uh, and it, it talked about the strangler fig, which is popular in Africa. And what would happen is a bird would get this seed, and it, when it's, you know, nesting in the tree or whatnot, it would you know, drop it there in the tree, and that seed would take root in the tree, and it would actually start to tap the resource of that tree and suck it of its nutrients, and the strangler fig would actually was like a, its own type of tree, would take over the structure of that tree and overcome it. 
And it started off as a seed. This is a full-grown tree. It could be huge, you know, big trees standing there in the, in the woods. But, um, but that, that seed could take root in it and overcome that big, giant tree. And it starts small, but it, it starts to drain the resources out of it and take it over. And I thought, like, what an incredible picture of sin or something that we allow into our, our lives and our spirit. It starts off small, but it, if we're not careful, it can tap the thing, like, most valuable to us, our resource and and we can, uh, we can, it can overcome us. Yeah, you know, over the years, I, I have seen that, especially when you kind of cycle through people's lives, you know what I mean? It's one thing when you're with them all the time, but, but uh, because of uh, uh, traveling and preaching sometimes in churches over, you know, repeatedly, you know, I've seen people where, you know, uh, uh, you know some small event had happened in their life. I knew them, and they kind of, yeah, this happened. And then they come back three years later, and exactly what you're saying, it's taken over their spirit. They've, they've actually they've just become different people. And it's because what was at one time a seed allowed to germinate, you know, allow, and, and you come back, and it's like they're a different person. And, and you know, maybe subtly you don't, you don't really notice. You know, the other day, Yolanda and I were out back, or we're, we're looking in our backyard when we moved into our house. About eight years ago, uh, uh, we, we planted two little trees. These trees were probably about this high. Uh, today, that tree is about 20 feet high. And it's strong, it's robust, and, and it's not because I'm a green thumb. I like I dig, digged around it and dunged it or anything like that. Uh, but it, it just, you, 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 know, you just notice, wow, this thing is huge. And you, and you don't think, you didn't notice that. That just happened. And then one day, you go out and you go, wow, look at the size of this thing. How did this happen? And, and yet, we don't understand how that can happen to us. We don't realize that those seeds, if we're not uh, uh, dealt with, and next thing you know, it's like one day, it's like, wow, how did I, how did I get here? How did this happen? Well, it happened because little things become big things. Mr. Medrano? Uh, we're talking also about uh, uh, taking care of uh, a baby. Uh, you know, everything that's small, we take care of it, and it grows. And uh, same thing with the baby. Uh, the mom has to be uh, almost on top of the baby, uh, watching him for everything that he needs. And uh, it'd be times when uh, the baby be crying, he going, rah, rah, and the mom, the mom go and check him out. And he don't have nothing, nothing wrong with the baby. So she go ahead and do her chores. And then again, the baby started making meow, meow. And then mom goes back and then she finds out that the baby also has a habit. He keeps on making noises just to be paid attention. Nothing wrong with that. But then the mom or the dad had to make other things, you know, to happen in the house, clean up and all that. So it reminds me about Having a habit. All right. A little Mother's Day, a little Mother's Day commentary there. Um, see, the outcome of our lives really has to do with the little things. All right. And since we're in the playoffs, I'll use a little NBA uh, vernacular. You know, in the NBA, you'll hear these guys. I don't know where it started, but they all, you hear this from time to time now. They call them the 50-50 
plays and they're asking, you know, what's going to be the difference between this team and that team. And they'll say, oh, well, it's the 50-50 plays. And so the 50-50 plays are referring to, you know, when the ball is loose, who grabs that loose ball, who that extra hustle to run down the court and play defense. And what they're saying is that usually uh, the team that wins or loses in a, in a, a playoff series has to do with things that don't show up in statistics. They're not the normal who scored the most, who rebounded and all that, but it's, it's all these things that, that you, don't, you can't quantify, and yet they're probably the reason why one team beats another team, and that's just, it's all these little things. All this, this, this you know, this, these little uh, things that, are, that have, uh, uh, if one team has decided to just try harder than the other team. And, and so, you know, the Bible says as much that it really is the little things that are going to make the difference. You know, we have a couple of um, uh, uh, examples of this from the Bible. Luke 1, 5 through 11. And in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named uh, Zechariah of the division of Abraham. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and, he named, and, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple to the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of the incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, this is the story of John the Baptist, the announcement of his birth. Uh, and so we have the Zacharias and Elizabeth. And what I like about this passage of Scripture is that we're looking at an older couple. The Bible says they were beyond the childbearing years. And it, this begins to describe their life. And that what we, look, what we see here is the, all the little things that the Bible says about them, about their pedigree and uh, who they were. The Bible says that, uh, uh, that he was a priest in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense, went into the temple. The Bible says they walked in all the commandments and all the ordinances. They were blameless and they were righteous before God. And so what you're looking at is a couple who just did a lot of little things. These little things, they were, they're, they're, they're faithful. Years and years have gone by, like any couple. I'm sure they wanted children. I'm sure Elizabeth, especially in those days, to not have a child was a reproach. And, and, and so through whatever disappointments they had in life, these guys were just faithful. They were just doing what they're supposed to do, carrying out the responsibility. And those little things added up to a big thing. Bible says they were faithful, they were blameless, and, the, and that the, the, this list is put out in describing them, that, the, that the, this is a, a commentary about who they were. And so at any given moment, simply carrying out his uh, priestly duties or his wife just saying, you know what, I'm not going to get mad at God because I can't have a child, all these little qualities that were in them that singularly you would have just said, well, you know, yeah, the guy, you know, did his thing and his, why, well, yeah, that's good. But as time went on, these, 
little things turned into a big thing. The Bible says that one day he goes in to carry out his priestly office, burn incense, and an angel's waiting for him. And this angel begins to tell him that God's about to do something and he's chosen to use this couple. And, and when you look at him, you, you, it's, it is directly associated with this. It's directly associated with this uh, commitment to the small things in their lives. And that small thing blew up and became something very big. Luke 16, verse 10. Yeah, I, gave, I didn't give Luke 16 out. Really? Wait a minute. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust is what is least in unjust also in much. Faithful in what is least is faithful in much. Unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. And so here it's the, it's the little things Jesus said that are going to determine the outcome. It's how we handle because the little things are the building blocks of life and our habits are really the product of all the little things faithfully or unfaithfully that we do that our practices that we do because eventually they become second nature they become our default they become uh, uh, something that we become the easiest path to go on right the easiest road to go on let me say to you what I think I've said every Sunday morning of this Sunday school, that on Sunday mornings, the most natural thing in the world is for people to get up and I'm say, I'm going to go to church. It would be unnatural for you to say, I'm not going to go to church. If you raised your children this way, then to go and say, you know, kids, we're not going to go to church. They'd probably start crying. They probably, you know, you know, because it's their nature. On the other hand, there are other people the idea of getting up and going to church, I mean, they have to force themselves to do that because it's not in their nature. They have to fight against their default nature, which is to sleep in or to do something else. And so Jesus said, if you could take the little things and be faithful with them, they are faithful things, then that would be a great thing. But if it's, it's not that way, then you're just going to make life harder for you. Okay. Luke 22, 39 through 44. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then the angels appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being, okay, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became great, like, like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So here we have the Lord Jesus, the well-known story that after the Last Supper, he crosses over the brook. And he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is where he knows he's going to be arrested. And he's praying, he's trying to get Peter, James, and John to pray with him. And it is here the Lord Jesus, uh, the Bible says, uh, says to the Father, 
Uh, if there's any way this cup can pass, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the Bible says he was in agony and he sweat great drops of blood. This is a very powerful, powerful, significant moment. But it begins with the, the statement that he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed to. That Jesus went where he always went. He, he did what he always did. That going to the garden to pray was not new to him. It wasn't a change of pattern of behavior. He did what he always has done. And he goes to this place and he prays. Why did Judas take the soldiers to the garden? Because he knew that's where Jesus would go. That was his custom. That was the pattern. And so uh, from at some point when Jesus was in Jerusalem, who knows when this began, he started going to this place and making this an altar, a place of prayer. And if you were a, you know, a theologian, you would say that he went to the Mount of Olives because the olive, in order to produce its oil, had to be squeezed and crushed. And only when it was crushed is the oil that comes out of it that makes the anointing oil and the oil that lights the golden lampstand. And, you know, you could, you could you know, say that's why he was there in the Mount of Olives, because he is the ultimate one who produces the oil. And on and on, we understand that. But, you know, on its face, Jesus started doing something I'm going to come here and pray. I'm going to make this an altar. This is going to be my sanctuary, my refuge. So now here he is in the most critical uh, moments of his life. Okay. He has all the same, you know, emotions and human feeling that, that every one of us have. The Bible says he is sympathetic with our infirmities. He, he, he's no different than you and I. He understands fully that he is surrendering himself to a demon-possessed mob to do with whatever they would. He understands that. He is not going to press the eject button. He's not going to react. He's not going to, he's going to go like a lamb that is dumb to the slaughter. And so as a result of that, he's battling this. And what does he do? He does what he's always done. He goes right to the default. He, the, the, all those small choices have brought him to this critical place, and he does what he's always done. He finds himself in that garden praying because he had created a very powerful pattern. He said, okay, and that brought him to that place. In that place, he was able to pray that prayer and work through all the, the, all the fears. You know, how many people, you think about it, when they are under stress, they go to their default. Okay? When, when, when things are that difficult, when the pressures are on, when then there's anxiety, they go to that default. But unfortunately, it's not always the Mount of Olives. Man, there are some people when the stresses of life are on, I mean, they naturally go and find a place to pray. Cry out to God. And, and say, I'm going to make good decisions. God, I need you. I need you to show me. I need you to help me. And their default nature is to draw nearer to God, cry out to him and say, God, I need you. Now, at the same time, there are other folks. Unfortunately, that's not the case. A lot of people this morning that woke up and said, today, I'm not drinking. 
I'm not going to, you know what, it's a Mother's Day. I'm going to, you know, do the right thing. But when pressure happens today, their default, their Mount of Olives is to run down to the tavern. Or to go and get, you know, get, bake the bottle open and knock down a couple of anti-anxiety medications. It, because under pressure, we tend to move to those involuntary decisions that are the product of all the little decisions we've made along the way. For the Lord Jesus, it was a very positive thing. But for some people, it's the exact opposite. Bridget? So when I was a teenager, my default was to go find some vodka when things got really, really bad. You know what I mean? But when I noticed that, like, major decisions, I would always go to the beach and try to find God. And, okay, so what do you really think about this? What do you really think about joining the Air Force? What, and I'm just at the ocean all by myself with, are you listening? You know, and so my default was always to go to the beach and, and you know, try to talk to God. But it was interesting because then, you know, we didn't have, obviously, morning prayer back there. But then after I got saved and they started having morning prayer here, and I always did, and, and when I first got saved, we went all the time, but then, you know, you get married, you got kids, you get older. And I found myself only coming when major stuff was going on, like things in my business, or somebody gets cancer, or this is going on, or financial situations, and so once a week, if that. And then, you know, maybe twice a week. And, and, then, and then when the crisis was over, okay, get, I'm going to sleep in now, you know? But then, um, then I started to say, okay, I'm going to try to make it twice a week, and then three times a week. And then it became, it became a habit. But what was so cool is that when the crisis hit, I was already there. And when the crisis or when things happened, my, my default was already, okay, I need to, I can't wait to get to prayer now. And, and it was, you know, and I look back, you know, 29 years now, at the hardest times in my life and the, you know, the, the crushing, painful times is that, you know, some of those things happened after it was already habit. Yeah. And so I'm already here. I'm already meeting with God. And it was such a blessing to, uh, such a blessing to have that in my life already. I'm so glad my, my kids have embraced it too. And I just, if I could throw this out, if you're not doing it, if you don't have it, make it because when those crushing times come and it's already a habit, it's already your default. It's not this, it's not that. It's your default. I'm already here. I can't wait. He's going to meet me there, and it's already there. And, you know, you can tell people they've got cancer. I'm already there. I'm going to be praying for you the exact same spot I do every Saturday morning or every morning at 7 o'clock, and I'm going to be praying for you. Very good. Jim? Uh, you know, now that she kind of mentioned that, I began thinking about it. And growing up, you know, my, you know, my dad would always go to prayer in the morning before he go to work. And so, you know, now that I've gotten to that age where I, you know, I have that responsibility of, you know, going to work, I noticed one thing that I began to uh, really begin to develop in my, you know, uh, you know, every morning is to make a point to wake up early enough so I can make morning prayer, you know, whether that's 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever the case may be. Um, and so because of that habit of, you know, my, my, my parent or my, my, my dad doing that, then I, you know, I was like, well, that I have to do that because that's something that is required. That's something that, you know, that I've always known. I've always known to do. And so it's funny because when I don't make it to prayer or, you know, or, you know, I'm, you know, because I slept in or because, you know, I'm doing something, whatever the case may be, that when I go to work, 
I feel like I feel like I've sinned or something because I'm like I'm not I didn't I didn't even make an uh, you know I didn't even make it make it to prayer in the morning and so I noticed that's one of those uh, habits that uh, really um, I really began to develop you know in you know in, in in my walk is just making sure I have that time and so I know that when I do make it to prayer it's just uh, it's you know I feel like you know okay I can start the day you know I'm ready to go you know how you know but when I don't it's like I'm off and it's like you know something's going on with me and I'm like okay you know what I need and so then you know I'll go home and I'll you know begin praying you know right when I go home you know after work but it's just something that I that I noticed and so it's pretty it's pretty interesting how you can develop these type of habits. Josh Steele. When I was, um, uh, back when I was younger playing football, I remember my coach would always preach, uh, do the little things right and the big things will happen. And uh, it didn't help our football team much, but uh, just looking at that, coming in, getting saved, I remember, you know, just in my mind, you know, I don't like talking in front of people. People scare me to death and this, but I said, you know, I'm going to go to morning prayer. I'm going to go street preaching downtown. I'm going to do these things that I didn't want to do, I didn't want to be a part of, but, you know, if I'm going to be saved, I'm going to go do that. And looking down the road that each one of these little things that I did, little choices, a haunted house, just being involved with things, sacrificing some things, uh, led me to big things. And so it's a powerful thing. And on the flip side of that, you know, doing the little things uh, can cause big things to happen. And uh, little uh, in considerations in a marriage or, or just little habits that go on or things, little allowances that you give yourself that at the time they don't make a big difference, but they will play themselves out and, and, and do little things and big things will happen one way or the other. Okay. Uh, wow, these hands. Ed. All right. In, in construction, uh, we're all about safety. And, uh, and, uh, and when I was working for this uh, one uh, general contractor, the, the uh, elevator guys were there. And so ha- hanging out with them and talking to them and helping them out with work, uh, I started asking them what's their biggest uh, uh, number one safety uh, problem, you know, and uh, injuries. So I was expecting, you know, being crushed, you know, elevator on top or, you know, something, you know, pinch point. But it wasn't. It was fall. And I told him, well, how does that happen? You guys are always wearing harnesses. He said, what it is is that when we're doing elevators, the, the, the ones that get hurt are the ones with the least experience and the ones with the most experience are the ones that get hurt. Uh, the least experience because they come with bad habits, no safety. The ones with 10 years and more, they're the ones that get also uh, mo- the most injuries because they start picking up bad habits. They get careless. And the careless that comes when they're going into an elevator shaft, and they open the door and they just walk off. That's their number one. Because they get so used to you know, just going in and just walking off. And so they get careless on thinking, okay, what number was I? And so they started creating different safeties, different filters to kind of keep them safe. So they wear harnesses. They got to use keys. And so I was thinking about that spiritually. You know, you've, you've also mentioned, you know, having filters in your computers. But I think we need to, you know, start building up some kind of filters for our prayer life and, you know, different areas that kind of keep us because... Our bad habits are not going to prayer. Our bad habits are not reading the Bible. And so we start putting other things. And as we grow in Christ, we can be like those 10-year uh, experience. We start getting careless. Or, you know, people that come in, you're starting, you're starting being new in Christ. You can be careless and ignore the important things. I just wanted to. Very good. Okay, very good material. We're going to pick this up next week. Lord bless you.